The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. We've spoken a lot about the funded ratio lately, and guess what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. In fact, invite someone to join you. Wade and Alex do just that, and invite David Blanchett to discuss, what else, the funded ratio. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to Retire With Style. I'm Alex, I'm here with Wade, and we have a reoccurring guest that I'll let Wade do the honors on. Thanks, Alex. And thank you, David Blanchett. We're very welcome, uh, very happy to have you back for another episode. Dr. David Blanchett, uh, PhD, is the Managing Director and Head of Retirement Researcher for PGM DC Solutions. And he's a very active retirement researcher. I've Actually, I believe it was about 10 years ago, possibly even this month, that we met in person the first time at that O'Hare, Chicago O'Hare Hilton <laughs> Airport uh, Hotel that... I always talk about how I flew there from Japan. I never really left the airport facility because the uh, hotel there is connected underground to the O'Hare Airport. So then I flew back to Japan again, but met you in person there the first time and really had a pleasure to do a lot of research with you over the years. And you've done your own separate research and everything else. And, and so we're glad to have you here this week to talk about another important topic in retirement planning, which is how to like using software, how, how to think about building a retirement income plan, matching assets, matching liabilities, putting them all into one particular set of calculations and seeing how that plan performs and whether someone's comfortable with the plan that they have. And, and so to start, I, I think you have some issues with how some of the Monte Carlo based financial planning software tends to work, but we should probably define to begin with, what is it that if I go to a financial advisor and they run a, a financial plan for me and tell me I have a 90% chance for success, what exactly is going on? Like, what, what does this mean? What are they doing? How are they achieving that type of calculation? Yeah, so if we go like way back, so when I, when I first got in the industry 20 years ago, um, when you did a financial plan, it was like deterministic, right? So you would assume that, that um, returns, that stocks go up 6% a year, whatever it was, okay, very basic. Um, the industry over the last decade or two, I think, has widely shifted towards something called Monte Carlo simulation. Um, it sounds really sexy. I don't, I don't really know what it is. Um, you just assume that there's some form of randomness as part of the projection. Um, in theory, you can have lots of random things in a projection. You could have um, random mortality. You could have health shocks. You could have you know random retirement dates. But in reality, for the vast majority of tools right now, you have you have random returns. And now, to, to be clear, when I say random. Um, it's been pre-specified. You've, you've set assumptions that you're going to use, but you're not going to assume that stocks just go up, say, 8% a year. You're going to assume that stocks go up, stocks go down, and you're going to do different runs or trials. You're going kind to of, kind of assume, oh, this is one possible retirement, this is another. And then how it usually works in most tools is you then kind of have a forecast. I want to have $50,000 a year for 30 years. I, I'm then going to look within 
all of the different runs or trials um, add up how many I get, uh, how many times I accomplish my goal. So there's a thousand different runs, and I accomplish my goal um, in 800 of those. I would have an 80% success rate. So the success rate is focused on effectively a, a binary outcome. Did I accomplish my goal in its entirety or did I not? And that is kind of the overwhelmingly most used metric today, at least from what I've seen um, in financial planning software. Okay. And so there's an important nuance you said there about, yes, many things are random in retirement. We don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know how much we're going to spend. We don't know whether we might experience a spending shock that requires us to spend more than we budgeted for. Uh, we don't know what market returns will be and, and so forth. But for the most part, financial planning software assumes only the market returns are random. Everything else is fixed in advance. And that includes, I'll live to a specific age. Here's the spending I'm gonna do every year in retirement. If I'm thinking about a long-term care spending shock, it would have to be specified as exactly what that is. It's not going to be randomly introduced into the, the simulations or anything like that. And and you, as you point out, there's some issues there. Like, what should people be thinking about if, like, if I do one of these financial plans? First of all, if I use two different softwares, software A might tell me I have a 95% success rate. Software B might tell me I have a 75% success rate. Uh, and so there's some issues. Maybe we should talk about what's causing the differences that people usually see, but then more generally, like what are the problems with this type of an approach? So I, you know, first, like this is like a, I've been working on this for decades. There's like so many places to go when it comes to these forecasts. So the first thing that I always say is the forecast is going to be wrong, right? No one knows what's going to happen over the next year, the next 10 years, the next 30 years, right? But we use these forecasts, these models to help us make decisions on what we should be doing. So like, gosh, how much do I have to save to retire? Um, how much can I spend when I retire? And so I think that it's important that, that the assumptions that we use, the models that we build, um, track reality as much as possible. So like one really common assumption in Monte Carlo engines is still today that returns are the same as historical long-term averages, right? Um, so in, for some reason, I, I, you know, everyone always picks U.S. historical returns. So let's just assume that, you know, that going forward, the returns are going to be the same as they've been historically. Now, you know, Wade, I know you did research on this over a decade ago, looking at international returns. There's no like, I get it. It's, it's, a, it's a convenient thing to do, but it's not very realistic to assume that, you know, if the average yield on government bonds has been 5%, I can earn that today because you can't. So I think that there's, there's all these, there's, there's so many important assumptions in these models, but a lot of the base assumptions that advisors use are just like, you know, out of the gate wrong. And, you know, I, I love talking about this to advisors and they're like, well, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. So why would I use a forecast or term versus historical long-term averages? And, and the point that I always make is that, that these aren't going to be correct, but they need to be as, as, as correct as we think that they can be. So like you need to, it's a better process. Yeah. You, you need to use reasonable return expectations and you know back when like bond yields were like one percent you shouldn't assume you can earn five percent on government bonds it's just not realistic right so like you know out of the gate like that is that is one you know i'll never forget when i was a planner like 20 years ago like you would lose clients because you'd be like hey you, you'd use better assumptions you'd say hey you should probably you know, plan to live to like 95 you should use you know forecast and oh i can't work with you because this other planner they're going to help me accomplish my goal they have a higher success rate well 
Yeah, because they're using dumber expectations. Like, it's, it's not a better model. And so I think it's important to distinguish, you know, like the quality of a model and the output and try to understand all these assumptions. And a problem to understand this is that there's there's all these interlocking assumptions, all these levers that you can that you can pull up and down that have a huge impact on the output of these projections. So I think that they're like critically important. You have to have some kind of guidance or information what you should be doing. The problem is, is that, you know, a lot of the key assumptions, the key outcomes metrics that we use today, I think are just kind of inadequate um, in terms of kind of helping people make better decisions. Uh, David, are, are you sure they let, they didn't become a client because of your assumptions or are they just, you know... Let's just put the obvious <laughs> out there. They just, why not vote? Let's just, they, we just make, they, I mean, you need to continue vote. being an advisor for a reason, <laughs> right? Vote, right? Yeah, like. <laughs> what do you think, I, I have heard <laughs> so many advisors. That, that is, I have heard so many advisors say that they have literally lost clients because yeah. they have done a financial plan using forecasted returns. And, you know, like this dummy across the streets, assuming that stocks go up 12% a year and bonds go up 5.5% a year. And so everything looks awesome, like the Lego movie. Um, but in reality, that's just not a realistic expectation. No, right. I get you, and, I get you. Right. And when you plug in the U.S. historical numbers, something like the 4% rule, if you just test that in the software, it will, it'll report a 95, 94% success rate. Whereas if you account for, no, interest rates are lower and you can't get an average bond return from a lower interest rate starting point. So you make some adjustments to reflect that reality. The success rate's going down. And like, as you're pointing out, no, the advisor down the street said, I have a 95% success rate. You're telling me 70%. Uh, I think I'll go with the guy down the road. And unfortunately, that guy down the road is not using good assumptions. So, I mean, the reality is we can have a whole arc on Monte Carlo, right? Whether, you know, you're bootstrapping your, you know, whatever sampling size you use, this, that, there's a, there's a lot of things here to, to unpack, to use a, a word you use in our last sort of uh, visit, David. But uh, in terms of, in, in the theme of this arc, using Monte Carlo from a financial planning standpoint as you're, you know, assessing your ability to, to take retirement income from a budgeting standpoint, there's I, I, the and you alluded to it in the last time we met. I, I think the biggest shortfall here, and it's not so much Monte Carlo, but the way it's used, is the focus on success rate as opposed to, you know, the the other way around, the magnitude of failure. I I think that's that's a huge huge impactful issue that leads to that underspending over over the long term, and a you know not 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 a very fulfilled retirement on a relative basis. I, I, I think that's where it's at from a budgeting standpoint as opposed to, you know, the, the you know, the, the stats part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think no, I, you're talking I, about the, go ahead, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, just that you're talking about this idea that the focus gets entirely put on, I need a high, prob- a high probability of success without really paying much attention to what does yeah. it mean to not have success? <laughs> because I think, yeah, because I think to some extent, Clients and advisors, it's almost like that, that game in Princess Bride with the Greek and uh, Wesley, right? You know that I know that you know that I know that you know that I know. And what I think a client does is, okay, you're going to give me this, but you know what? In addition to that, I'm going to even have my own little side calculation on the side that's going to be more conservative in case you screw up. You know what I mean? So they, there's always these kind of perpetual circles of, overly conservative assumptions to hit a hundred percent and you need to have like you know you want you want your portfolio to survive five nuclear scenarios 
which at that point it's it's a big who cares and and so yeah it's it's that kind of theme and i think focusing on success rates facilitates that thinking yeah i mean so taking a step back you know with any kind of model or projection you need to ask like certain questions you know like does the model itself that i'm does my forecast model reflect what people actually do do people blindly take the same amount of money from a portfolio every year plus inflation no matter what happens yeah. no do people experience they outcomes? Chicken with is is retirement a binary outcome where either i am like just so happy that i accomplished my goal or i'm miserable like there's no in between with success rates there's like either i'm like i'm a one or a zero so like when you're when you're when you're building portfolios or you're you know, a quantifying thing, you have what's called an objective function. Like, what am I trying to maximize, right? And literally, there's just two states with success rates. It's a one or a zero, okay? And that totally ignores, well, like, maybe I'm a zero and I didn't accomplish my goal, but I literally fell a dollar short in the 35th year of retirement, okay? So that's actually like a, a 0.9999999, but you can't capture that using success rates. And so what worries me is that, you know, one... You know, success rates, again, assume an entirely fixed goal. And to your point earlier, Alex, it ignores the magnitude of failure, right? You know, every American effectively has some form of guaranteed lifetime income. Okay, that provides a floor. Okay, a question that's really important is, is how much of your non-discretionary, your inelastic, your needs, there's lots of your essential expenses, does that cover? Right. Then you have your savings. Your savings is always marginal. What what is that doing for you in terms of providing income? It could be that you get all the all the all that you need covered from your guaranteed income. Then the role of the portfolio is dramatically different in that environment than if it's covering most or all of your kind of non-discretionary expenses. And success rates by definition cannot capture that. And so what worries me is it can give very bad advice around things like, you know, how much risk you should take, how much you have to save, how much you can spend, should I buy guaranteed income? Because it doesn't capture if you fall short, how short you fall across all these projections and models. Wait. Right. And so kind of something that came up that's related to this point, too, you know, people won't play this game of chicken. They'll adjust their spending. There's a whole literature about variable spending strategies and there is a limitation. And I don't know if at this point, maybe some software has figured that out. Not that I'm aware of. For the most part, no financial planning software can incorporate a dynamic strategy where you adjust something, whether it's spending or something else based on how that simulated Monte Carlo simulation for that particular scenario is going. So that if that scenario gives you some down market years, there's no commercial software that can say, okay, let me cut my spending a little bit and see how that would impact the overall financial plan. And now we, we have the research because we can program that sort of thing. So we can look at that type of dynamic spending strategy, but it's something that just can't be done with commercial financial planning software. Would, and that I, I think is leading to this your problem. statement. Um, it can be There's done. someone who's figured, who's got it now? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> who's, someone is, has done it. Someone the, is building it as we speak. I think the reasons, I think the, the problem well, is, is, is it available now? Or? Not currently, but I think the problem okay, well, well. is, well, so the thing is, it's not that it can't be done. 
Okay, the problem is... is no, that, it can't. It certainly yeah. can be done. Well, but the uh, problem is... Because is we, we do it in our own research. Well, yes. But the problem is is that the vast majority of dynamic models are, are unsuitable to be used in, a, in an actual financial plan, given things like uncertain cash flows and calculation timing. So the vast majority of models exist kind of in a bubble. And so what you have to have is what I'll call like a, a cohesive series of models that one, you know, you can iteratively adjust withdrawals in retirement based upon preferences and situation, like a unique objective function that then captures how things evolve. But like is when you introduce dynamic withdrawals into a model, one, most models can't do it because they can't incorporate uneven cash flow. So I retire at 65. I claim Social Security at 70. I get a D, a kick in 85. Very few models can actually incorporate future instances of, of cash flows into the actual current decision today. Right then, on top of that, once even once you solve that, it requires a different outcomes, de- you know, metric. Because if you all of a sudden then adjust withdrawals, figure out how you're going to adjust them over time, and then it changes your outcomes metric. All of a sudden, success rates no longer work, right? Because like, what are you actually oh, yeah. accomplishing? So it, it, the problem is, it, it has it, it, it. Not only do most existing models not work, it, it breaks the outcome metric that the vast majority of planners use today. Right. You cannot use a probability of success with a variable spending strategy. Right. Uh, and so the the software that eventually provides this sort of dynamic spending would need to adjust accordingly. Well, and so I can still like this notion of like there's like there's diagnostic metrics about like how you're doing those and there's outcome metrics. How do you in a very salient manner relay how on track someone is to accomplish their goal, right? So again, like success rates have become the prominent metric. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't like them, but I like the fact that they incorporate uncertainty. You know, you're providing some context around, well, you're not necessarily guaranteed to accomplish a goal. The problem, right, is that it isn't necessarily very useful, right? Like you could have a, a 0% success rate, but be on track to replace like 88% of your goal in virtually all simulations. Mm-hmm. And so that, that there's no, there's a huge disconnect, right? You know, and so I think, I think to me, that's the problem is that, is that, it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't track how individuals would actually respond to environments or how they would feel about different outcomes because it's a, it's a it's a binary metric. If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M C L E A N A M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. Yeah, and it ultimately, it gives you that probability distribution of outcomes and lets you eyeball what you feel most comfortable with. Because something like a magnitude of failure can certainly be incorporated. Alex and I used to, we built out a software program together 10 years or so ago where we did have the magnitude of failure in there as a metric. It, it, that's but, not but hard But we didn't to, have the dynamic stuff like David's fancy software now. <laughs> well, we did in the safe savings rate module. It just never got moved over to the main. Oh, yeah. We do have the safe savings rate module. You're right. So, I mean, I, I guess yeah, what, yeah, I, what, I, what I'm pushing for is a movement. I think that goal completion is a much more useful statistic you can actually do it in most frameworks today so you know right now what you have is you have um you know monte carlo slash stochastic models that assume static spending that's okay right but as as opposed to telling someone that you have a you know a 47.35 percent chance of success i think that a more useful outcome metric would be that you know at age 95 and the worst one in 10 outcomes you're in you're going to accomplish 78 percent of your goal 
right? So, you know, focus on yeah. focus mm-hmm. on part of the distribution, use the existing tools we have, but, but give someone more context around, you know, no, I, how I think, they're doing versus like this, ah, uh, you're either you're in or you're out. Right. I think and telling someone saying, they can accomplish but, 78% of their goal at a certain age is 100% correct. I, I think you're spot and on. That, Sorry, wait. As you're, you're saying, I mean, that technology exists now. There's no nothing stopping any commercial financial planning software program right. from providing every, that information. Every every tool. I think if, if we just if you move if we move to that to goal completion, that would be a radical improvement in how individuals perceive outcomes. And that's that's not difficult. That is literally just picking a percentile within a, a, a series of runs, picking an age, and showing yeah. someone that. That's easy. I, I do still believe... Yeah, the calculations they've done have that information. Yes, just how they present. I think, I think the, the dynamic thing is actually <laughs> is really important because, you know, like the, it, your willingness to revisit a decision in the future can can radically just, dis- you know, if you as you iterate through, you know, it creates like cones or tulips, whatever you're going to call them, it could change what you would do today. So, you know, if you, do, I mean, you know, advisor would say, well, yeah, I'm going to go in next year and make this adjustment. But I mean, wait, you've, you've modeled this too. You know that if, if, if you're going to go in and make that change in the future, it can increase the withdrawal you're going to take out today. Right. So it can have a, a very, you know, should I allocate to guaranteed income and all that. And so I think that to me, there, you know, there's just all these things that we should be doing dynamic withdrawals, decomposing the retirement liability into like needs and wants, um, different outcomes metrics. I think that, that, you know, directionally we've made progress in terms of the use of Monte Carlo, but the outcomes metrics haven't changed in like 30 years, which is, yeah, I, I think, mm-hmm. I think you're going to have problems with that because from a logistic standpoint, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but okay, a software, unless you do a DeNova, a software provider for them to do something. You know, there's a certain cost embedded in it, and if the advisors aren't really asking for this feature, I just don't think they're going to do it because it becomes a, a business question. Well, it's going to cost you know me X amount of money to develop something that has that feature, and only two percent of advisors that are using this program are going to use that. I'm not going to do it. So you know, I, I think you're, I think you get a lot of that. I, I I suspect based on your facial reaction, you're going to counter, but I, I just don't see it, unfortunately. So but this actually so the, the earlier applied, it should the it earlier should. conversation that guy can get you you know a four percent withdrawal. I can get you yeah. a five percent withdrawal, and I can oh, show yeah. you why you're going to get it. Okay. Because so like you know again like to your point like you know th- this is all stuff that. I that we geek out about that I'm not sure that anyone else really cares about, um, but it really it is driving the decisions that advisors and households make. So like you know like there are low lifts. A so low lift is to move to goal completion versus success rates. I think it's it's incredibly important that we as an industry structurally longer term incorporate dynamic withdrawals to give better context about how spending is likely to evolve as you make changes um, versus just seeming kind of like a fixed goal throughout retirement. Uh-oh, wait, wait, we, we right. record Lies, these podcasts been... on video, and Wade just, Wade just did the unthinkable. He leaned over, yeah. and he picked up one of his books, and he's looking through the pages. So. Yeah, yeah, I was Good looking job. at the name of it. I mean, the, the point David just made, I, if I recall, we saw that in the titles of past research articles of, let me tell you how you can spend more. Oh, yeah, so uh, but, Jonathan Guyton's first article on the decision rules was... Decision rules and portfolio management for retirees is the safe initial withdrawal rate too safe. And that's exactly the point, that if you're willing to cut spending in the future, you can use a higher right. initial withdrawal rate. And therefore, that's exactly that's your point, that now we have a new rate to well, say, and, oh, and I withdrawal would, so rate's like, higher would, than the guy down would, the street. 
position too that like we we you know ag- academics that do like research for living use utility functions not success rates i think that you know like you know magnitude of failure is a is a good way to do it. you can actually overlay utility out metrics you know if you decompose the liability and i think that there's ways you can actually do this that are very friendly towards the, you can create outcomes metrics that are actually very friendly to retirees that are much more complicated i think that we've, we've can you can you describe utility function just for the since you threw it out there just for our, our listeners it could be you know conceivably some folks don't know what that sure, means. Just, you're just assigning numerical values to how how happy something makes you. So like you you, uh, you can, one could argue that success rates have a utility function. It's one or zero. One I accomplish my goal, zero I don't. Okay, that's that's your that's your utility function. Okay, well you could say actually if I accomplish my goal and have a surplus, I'm going to get a two. If I accomplish my goal and just barely do, I've got a one. And if I fall short by this, I've got like a 0.5. So it's just what you're trying to do is just is just quantify in a more granular fashion or however fashion you want how an outcome is going to make me feel. And so I think the key is with 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 utility functions in general is that, is that you you capture the, the array of outcomes at a much finer level of granularity. There's all types of of yeah. curves that you can use. The key is just it's just not it's not a it's not a binary state. It's not I'm happy or I'm angry. Yeah, it's not passive. It's not passive. So so if you're so if I'm I'm going to try to say something in in, in this sense, I, I I think I have it, but I just you know give me your blessing if you will. So if you do it just based on the probability of success, that's either you pass or fail. If you look at it within the utility function, you can incorporate within the pass or fail. In addition to that the magnitude of failure, the other kind of wrinkles that provide a better context towards a more fulfilling retirement. Yes. And it makes it not linear so that like as your legacy or as your spending gets higher and higher, you're happier, but at a decreasing rate so that you, you put more emphasis on protecting yourself in bad scenarios. You worry less about assigning a lot of weight when the, when the scenarios are very good. And uh, the more risk averse you are, the more emphasis you put on the bad. Yeah, there's a marginal utility the... to to the surplus. Well, and, and so will. again, like and so like again, like so where does this like so where this also matters is like is like when you think about your retirement goal, it's like let's assume you just have like needs and wants. Okay, well, you know, a shortfall in a wants is let I, I derive less disutility from that than a sh- than I would if I have a shortfall in my needs. And so then two, what it allows you to do is kind of you know create a, a better utility function or perspective on if there is a shortfall, how does that affect me as a person, right? And so that could then change, like, do I allocate to guaranteed income? How much can I spend? All of that can, like, radically change when you have a kind of, a, I think, a, a better approximation of not only the retirement liability, but then also the outcome metric you use to kind of quantify it. We would talk about consumption smoothing, but since you already mentioned utility functions, we can't do both of those in one episode. Uh, it's it's not, not possible. <laughs> no, but, uh, but, but David, it, it, in terms of the Monte Carlo, there, there's a quick point because we're, we're kind of like, you know, we're, we're kind of cracking on it for sport at this point. Uh, would you say you throw it no. out? Or there is some, okay, I, I just want, I, I agree. I just want, there's some advisors listening to it. And sometimes I, I've heard consumers when we're talking to them, especially the folks on Retirement Researcher, you know, they're quick to dismiss Monte Carlo. We're, we're not trying to, 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 to bury it. We're just trying to make sure it's used within the proper context is all. And what interpretation can be the most effective? At least that's my take on that. Would you agree with that? So one thing, one comment I make is one thing I want to, I don't want to smack advisors, but like they're like, 
Monte Carlo assumes normal distribution for returns. And I'm like, hold up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm exactly. Like, I'm like, I can't stand that. That drives just, me absolutely buddy. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, first off, Monte Carlo can like do anything. You could literally model anything <laughs> in Monte Carlo. Your tools that you use maybe can't do that. But like, like you could build like the craziest models known to man in Monte Carlo. So like, I think first off, you need to separate like the like you know the actual like ability versus your tool and then like it, it is an evolution from you know like you know deterministic forecasts there are problems with it and i think that it just needs to evolve i think the important thing is is don't assume that it can't do something if it can't do it it's because the tool that you're using can't not that monte carlo itself can't somehow do it i, I think you're I think you're being kind. I think those are just folks that don't want to use it to begin with, so they look for a reason, and then they feel kind of like, oh, I did my research. Look, it's not normally distributed. I'm out. Honestly, I, I think it's as simple as that. <laughs> but I guess I'm more of a cynic than most. <laughs> well, to take this full circle, too, kind of one issue with Monte Carlo is, you know what the average return is, because that's the, the input to the calculations, and, and it has a volatility to that as well. But if I say target a 90% success rate, there is a fixed rate of return assumption that corresponds to that, but the software doesn't report it. You can reverse engineer it because you can look at the cash flow supported at the, the success rate you're targeting, and then just, well, what is the return implied that allowed me to have those cash flows? And, and that requires some effort. But th that number might shock people sometimes. Of course, it depends on the assumptions and everything else. But your 90% success rate could possibly correspond to a negative rate of return. It's just, it's hard to know. And so I've almost I, come full circle in some way and said, okay, rather than kind of worrying about a success rate, what if you just decided what rate of return are you comfortable with and did a deterministic plan based on that? And it should not be the average return because that would correspond to a 50% success rate. But if you did it that way, that might be an easier way to think through the type of problem I, that you're solving. Wait, I think what you said warrants, not repeating, but it warrants the folks listening to hit that that thing on the podcast that says 30 seconds back, 30 seconds back. <laughs> hit it twice and listen to it again because I, I think you're spot on and I think people really miss this. and Or they listen to it, it makes sense, but they haven't really gotten the, con the, the understanding of that. I, I think what you just said is... One of the most important things that, that, that this podcast had has had, to, at least right now, and it merits it, and it transitions into the funded ratio, may I say, which is, I think, where you were going with this. And I, I just, just want to bring it out from, a, from an important standpoint. Re-listen to it. Okay. Well, and in that regard, too, that's when I was writing the Retirement Planning Guidebook, that's really when I started paying more attention to the funded ratio and, and coming to the conclusion that as an initial retirement plan, why not just use something like that where you, you don't worry about a success rate, you just control what is the fixed rate of return assumption I'm going to use and, and see if the plan is funded in that regard. But it's, it's a parallel universe to Monte Carlo because with whatever rate of return I assume, there would be a corresponding probability of success. I would just have to reverse engineer that versus with Monte Carlo... I calculate a probability of success, and if I wanted to know the fixed rate of return, I'd have to reverse engineer that. So it, now, in the, in, the, in the previous episode, we spoke about funded ratios, and we defined it and, and everything like that. Uh, but with you, David, uh, you, you may want to talk about a little bit of the work you've been doing and your thoughts on the, the funded ratio and how that could work in terms of uh, budgeting for retirement income. Well, so, I mean, the funded ratio is a, is a goal completion metric, right? It fundamentally is telling you 
how so funded ratio it's at all assets balances and future guaranteed income streams divided by the goal and so it, it's it's very similar operationally right i mean based upon what you use in terms of discount rates within a model you know a funded ratio of one might approximate to a 50 percent success rate and so i think that that to me is 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 you know a larger question but you know i like them i like the idea of showing someone effectively like an income map where you show them, you know, this is, you know, your 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 needs goal, your wants goal. These are how your assets stack up against that. And then maybe that's how you actually allocate your portfolio. So what is the marginal role of the portfolio within how you're funding your retirement goal? Is it is it focused entirely on needs because you're underfunded? Is it focused on wants and more flexibility? But I think like those are the, you know, the funding ratio concept is very good because it is it is distilling the assets and liabilities separately, where in most Monte Carlo tools, are kind of conjoined. There's not like necessarily a perspective on, on, on how each differs. Fair enough. But there's actually really important implications, I think, for the funder ratio, even within like a, a more stochastic model. I think that it, it can play a powerful role as both a diagnostic metric as well as like an outcomes metric. We enjoy it as a starting point for the plan, frankly. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we, we do the RISA and then the RISA kind of identifies sort of, you know, where, how this person may want to source retirement income. And then we provide a funded ratio in which we do break it up. There's essential needs, there's discretionary, and we even put a component for reserves. And so we get a global funded ratio. And just to reiterate, if you folks don't want to listen to the previous episode and you just want to quick and dirty, it's just assets over liabilities. You know, the present value of your assets over the present value of your liabilities, right? And then how do you get that present value is what we're referring to as the discount rate, especially for the liabilities portion. But, you know, we do a global one and then we do one specifically for the discretionary, specifically for the uh, essentials and then one for the reserves. And then to us, that kind of provides insight when you overlay that with your preferences with regards to retirement style, where you want to focus on, what, what strategies you want to implement. We think it resonates quite, quite well with with folks and it's not just opinion i mean we've done probably how many wait a thousand at this point in our challenges and the, the reactions have been great with regards to how it really lays the groundwork for how to move forward because you're right i mean I, I when i heard you speaking in the previous one it is that you're right it's goal completion and it's in its literal sense 100 percent wait yeah and and like just Personally, I my own financial planning, I use the funded ratio. I've never really tried to run my financial plan through a Monte Carlo software program because you, you've just got more control. And uh, if you, we like to do it in terms of can your plan work without taking market risk? So let's put in a long-term tips yield as the discount rate, which suggests you're investing. It's not saying that you have to invest 100% in tips, but if you were to invest 100% in tips, does the plan work? And then beyond that, of course, you can decide to take on market risk. And, and but you have more, well, you have a better sense of if you need market risk or how that effectively can fit into the plan, knowing in advance whether market risk is necessary to make the plan work. So that that's how we think about it, and it it's, it fits into this whole Monte Carlo assumption uh, discussion because a lot of the assumptions are the same. The only difference is. I feel like you get better control over those capital market assumptions that you're using, which is where, to the point you made earlier, with this whole conversation around the advisor down the street is offering a higher success rate, 
those capital market assumptions are all in tiny print on the last page in a disclosure. And, and you really lose sight of what's going on there in a way that the, the funded ratio can help bring that back to the front and center. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's there's okay. kind of there's two really important out- metrics or just assumptions that affect the outcome of, of a financial plan. There's there's the capital market assumptions and how long retirement lasts. You know, so you want to make someone's plan look spectacular. Use historical long term averages, assume they're going to pass away at ninety, and you know, like you're 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 off, you know you're off the races now. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the thing is, uh, you know, the average person won't know why that's a, a terrible plan for them. You know, the average American that has any kind of savings is going to live a, a long time, right? If you're a married couple, like 30 years is like is like the starting point right now. And what worries me is that there's no kind of incentive for advisors to kind of really focus on figuring out what those right assumptions could be. So you kind of, you layer on, you, you start with a plan that you use, you know, you use crappy assumptions around returns, bad assumptions around how long retirement lasts. You have a, a bad outcomes metric like success rates. And you, it's just not necessarily leading to optimal advice. Now, is it better than a period of deterministic forecast? Probably. But, you know, it's hard to compare the kind of the efficacy of these of these plans because they can use vastly different assumptions that, that the average person has no clue what they should be. I think you're right. And you, you were saying before the podcast, we were just talking and a lot of your work has been going into this right now. Am I correct? Did I misremember that? Or is that, am I spot on? I'd love to hear, you know, to the degree that you can speak and for, for our audience just to get to know what, what you do. I, I, just speak about that. I, I, I think uh, within the context of the funder ratio, I, I think it's kind of cool the way you explained it earlier. Well, you know, I'm trying to become a trophy husband, but that's kind of failed so far. So I'm going to have to keep working. Um, no. So I think that, that, that there's a, there's a, it, it's, you know, in any environment, there's, there's a benefit to personalization, right? So you know, um, target date funds have been a radical improvement in the defined contribution space versus self-direction. That is unequivocal, right? You know, but the question is, is, well, could you use information about participants like their their income, their balance, their age, their savings rate, their plan tenure, their marital status to give them um, better advice or guidance, right? And so I think that where the industry could be headed is to give, to give you know, personalized portfolios, personalized recommendations um, in a variety of spaces. We've seen this kind of general growth of robo. And so, you know, one thing that, that, that I'm working on working on within Prudential, within PGIM is just is just how do you deliver that at scale? Right. So if you wanted to kind of help someone determine what is a more efficient portfolio or a better savings goal, what does that look like? And I think that you know, if you can tell based on what I've talked about things today, it, it requires a better model, it requires really thinking through, you know, what what the liabilities, what the assets are, and then kind of constructing, you know, more efficient portfolios, providing advice around guaranteed income, whatever it is, based upon that. So I think like the, the group that I'm a part of, it's a new group within um, PGIM. Those of you that don't know who PGIM is, it's the asset manager within Prudential, um, you know, creating strategies a- a- along those lines. So kind of really understanding what retirement is and how do you develop solutions to help folks accomplish better retirement. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> that sounds like a good place to wrap up for today. But we're very glad you joined us for two episodes, and it's it's great. We've had Michael Finko, one of your close colleagues. Oh, I, I didn't mention as part of your bio, and should, probably should. You're also an adjunct professor at the American College of Financial Services. There you go. So it, it, it's great having you as <laughs> part of the show. That box. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, and thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.
Hey, David, thank you so much. Seriously, it's been a great pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. You want to send us off, David? Wade and Alex are both principals of McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.